Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, just, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So um, I mentioned uh, to you that I, we, uh, John Cruz and I were just in Chicago in a city like Chicago, you come face to face with some issues, and uh, many issues, but one uh, stands out, always stands out when you think about a city like Chicago, and that is, it, that is that certain portions of the city are almost entirely still segregated, um, and the black communities there are impoverished. Um, when you ask, why did this happen? The answers to that are legion. There's concentrated poverty, um, that was created in the city, uh, the projects, and which leads to deeper and generational poverty. Um, industrial jobs were being shipped overseas when I lived in Chicago. I lived there and studied there uh, back in 2004. When I was there, the Brock's Candy Factory closed its doors and moved overseas where it's cheaper to do business. Um, and there are environmental questions around that. Um, there are greed questions around that. There are many reasons that these things happen. You can see the drugs, um, which numb the pain of some and pad the pockets of others. And drugs are rampant, especially in Chicago's south and west sides, which are impoverished, but really all over the city. And, and as we know in our own city, um, the worst school for drugs here would be the wealthiest um, in our city. That's where the most traffic occurs, right? Um, there's violence. Uh, Friday night, I stayed at my friend's place in West Chicago. And it was an interesting phenomenon. We were uh, hanging out, we sat up on his roof, and I went down to bed, and, and you just hear automatic weapons, you know, rattling off, and sirens, and, you know, with on the block, really. And it was a weird thing, because when I'm here in Tucson, and there's a, a few shots in my neighborhood, it alarms me, and I go out to look at what's happening. But like, I switched right back into Chicago mode, because I lived in South Chicago, and it's just background noise. It really doesn't even feel concerning. It's just so typical. It's kind of going on all the time. And of course, you have to ask, how, all that, how did all this come to be? How did this happen? And, and you learn when you're there. You might read books like American Pharaoh and read about how Mayor Daley, the older Mayor Daley, um, built the highway, not according to good urban design, but because he wanted to put a really huge chunk of separation between his Irish Catholic neighborhood and the black neighborhoods. And so he made the freeway, stra he strangely placed the freeway uh, to achieve that very goal. And you learn about white flight 
which happened after the, the great migration of, of black folks who, who came up after post-slavery to get industrial jobs. Uh, and then I learned this little nuance from a, a friend of mine there in Chicago who said, you know, it's not just that they moved into the neighborhoods. They, they couldn't afford to at first. They moved to the city, and then they started to make some money, and they wanted to move into nicer, safer neighborhoods. And when they started to move into nicer, safer neighborhoods, the, the Anglo folks, the whites, um, began to just leave. And, and it's so obvious because almost all of them did, like 98% um, left. They took their businesses, they, they moved their homes, and they moved out to the suburbs, and all of a sudden, um, the, the base of business, commerce, that made those areas vibrant was gone, and the poverty <laughs> came to be. And that all, if you trace all these things back, inevitably leads back to America's dark legacy of slavery, really. Because why was the Great Migration happening? It's because of Jim Crow laws and stuff like that that kept people feeling stuck in the system of slavery that was now illegal but very much still active in the South, which is why they came north for opportunity to cities like Chicago. So what in the world do we do with a Bible verse that says, slaves, submit to your masters? That's, uh, that's what it says in some translations. Here it's servants. Um, what do you do with that when you live in a, in a context? It, I don't know if we feel this one quite as much in Tucson. Just I know it, it matters here, but we feel it just a little less than you feel. I, I thought about preaching this in one, of those, in one of those Chicago churches. I thought that would be tough, right? This is one of the verses that makes people say, see, this is a religion of oppression clearly created by those seeking power. It bears the marks of being man-made and evil, right? That's, that's what some, some would say many have said uh, about the Christian religion based on scriptures like this one. So what do we say? Um, I want to show you a few key things in this text that I hope will help you to see it not only as, you know, like tolerable, but uh, actually valuable and truly revolutionary, I want to show you the principle being taught in here. I think it's very important to understand. Um, the power that we are being supplied that's being exhibited here in this text. And uh, most importantly, the person, Jesus Christ, we're called to walk with in this text. So first, the principle being taught. What it isn't and then what it is. I'll tell you what it isn't. It's not affirming that slavery was good then or is now. It's not the point of this text. It must be said, first off, that the servanthood being described um, in the days of the Apostle Peter was not the same as American chattel slavery. Um, there, are, there were dark forms of slavery that did exist in biblical times. Most of you would know that the, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, right? And that's never painted as good or happy or okay. Um, all periods of history have had such things. Are, today, we still do. They're the obvious and the inobvious forms of slavery that exists to this day. Um, but that said, it was not the same as what we experienced here in the African slave trade. Most likely Peter's readers were servants for whom being in the role was to some degree at least um, desirable. And what I mean by that is to be a servant of a good master was to work in a stable place, in a stable home. Often there was an inheritance attached. Sometimes you were a key person in raising the children of the home. And often freedom was something that was expected to come 
at a later date, unlike what many folks here in America felt and experienced. Um, in some cases, it might have been a little more like being a worker under contract um, today. And the case could be made that the best application of this text today would be to employees under their supervisors. Um, you, you might be able to say that would be a better application uh, today. But it wasn't quite that. It wasn't quite that. But no matter what it was, Peter still was not trying to affirm the goodness of the situation. He wasn't speaking to that at all. He wasn't trying to say this is good or, or best. He was just applying a principle to something that was real, that was a reality. Uh, it, today, we might say in our context, um, look, I don't know if Amazon or big banks are ideal or even moral, but you work for one. Um, so while you're there, God has called you to something, and here's what it is. Do good there, um, even if you aren't treated well. That might be a, a similar situation. It's not speaking to the morality of the situation. It's just saying, since you're in it, here as a Christian is how you should live. So it was not affirming slavery. Um, by the way, guess what most contributed to the demise of, of the system of slavery here in our nation and in Europe and, and what broke up the African slave trade? Many of you know the great politician, you know, William Wilberforce in England. He's animated by what? Christianity the slave ship operator that was converted and turned into an abolitionist, John Newton, wrote Amazing Grace. Um, Christianity was one of the, the greatest forces, even in the northern United States, of undoing that system of slavery. And how would you oppose slavery um, outside of a deep faith in which there's a God that, that declares that all people are made in his image and that all nations and languages are equally represented in his kingdom? You know, say if you were a uh, pragmatist or a naturalist, you know, where exactly would you draw the principles that could say this is dark and wrong? Um, it's hard. It's hard to understand how a how you could construct a, log a logical argument against slavery without making major unwarranted assumptions if there were not a God who declared the worth and value of all people. So this is not affirming slavery. In fact, it calls um, some forms unjust. The word, the word that we read in there was even if it's unjust. So it wasn't saying it's okay. It wasn't good. It, was saying it might be unjust. Um, and in fact, the Christian faith has been the most powerful force to oppose slavery. You could even say the black church. We'll get into that a little bit later. That united folks to stand against slavery. Um, it's animated by Christ. Secondly, the principle is not meant to be for the masters. This is key. Um, I, I don't know about any of you, but I have read copious amounts of history from the Southern Church, the Southern Baptists, the Southern Presbyterians. And, and having read a lot of this, I've read many of the defenses of slavery that came from the church, and almost all of them looked at this, and they said, as slave masters, they said, see, Slaves are supposed to submit to us. And there's a major problem with that reading of the text. And the problem is, it was not written to masters. It was written to the servants, teaching them how to engage their masters in order to bring their masters closer to the kingdom. Okay? Um, the masters getting a pass and getting to say, this is okay, we get to do this, was not the point. Peter was not talking to them at all. 
So what is the principle? It's, um, I told you what, it's not affirming slavery. It's not meant to be for masters to look at and say, ah, see, I can do this. So what is being taught here? And, and to really get a grasp on it, we have to reach a little further back into the book of 1 Peter. So I'll go back. This will be review if you've been here for, you know, over the last month or so. But um, yeah, I'll just start reading. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Peter had said. A people for God's own possession. He's talking to Christians, talking to the church, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, which war against your souls. He's speaking to all Christians, and he's saying, you who are, who are in a minority position in this case, this is why a lot of them were servants, um, you have a deep and incredible identity. You are called by God, you belong to him, and you have a mission to proclaim light into the darkness. That's who he's talking to. And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's assuming they're among unbelievers. We, we could assume here that the masters are unbelievers. And they were to act in such a way that people who spoke or did evil to them would be put to shame. And we'll come back to that. Then John taught on this last week, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, and here you see, again, believers um, under potentially even an unjust government, are, they're on a mission, and part of that mission is to silence the critic. This is, there's, there's something profound happening here. It's not just, uh, you know, survive. You might silence them. Um, again, Peter doesn't say the Roman government is ideal, but it is what they were under. Uh, and he says, because you are servants of God, here's how you should behave. And then he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The principle has been applied to submitting to institutions, authorities, even, it says, submitting to God over the body, the, the, the passions of your flesh. So what, what is the principle? Um, the principle is this, to exhibit the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. Exhibit the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. That's what you apply to the passions of your flesh. That's what you apply to the authorities and the institutions. And every Christian should know what that pattern is because it is through that pattern that you have been saved. If you're a Christian, Jesus has shown you mercy and he served you. That's, how you're, that's why you're here. So show people the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. Not, it doesn't say keel over and suffer. It doesn't say just put up with it. You're actually on a mission to show people the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. Okay, so that's the principle being taught. 
but there's also a power inherent in the principle. There's a power being supplied. So what, what is that and how does it work? The power here is held in the mysterious impact of gracious mercy on the human heart because people are created to be loved and grace, which means unmerited favor, is the, is the most deeply loving act. Um, in a sense, I'm saying that the most powerful agent of change in the human heart is the thing it was created to enjoy, and that is love and grace. Gracious, unmerited love, coupled with mercy, which mercy is when you pass over guilt. That's why so many Hollywood films tell stories of grace. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, you've probably heard, if you come here much, I, I pull one out about every other sermon. Um, but so, so many of the Hollywood films, they're sacrificial loving acts. It's emotionally powerful, it's clearly good, and in all these films, as in real life, Mercy turns out to be transformative. Sacrificial love changes lives. It's powerful. It's more powerful than any other strategy we might use. But I want to show you another side of this. I was, um, I was talking to my brother-in-law. He actually, he and I um, met in St. Louis on the way to Chicago. Uh, and and I was, we were in a discussion with a buddy of ours, and I was talking about how important it is in the church to apply grace to people, not just the law. And he asked, what about the need for discipline and accountability? What about that? Right? That's a great question. And, you know, how do you know when someone is in need right now of grace versus discipline? How do you know the state of someone's heart? And and the first thing I would say is, is this, because um, this applies to many people. A precursor to understanding grace is feeling your own need for the discipline, understanding your need for it. This is why a robust doctrine of sin um, is important for the church. Here's why. When people feel guilt, say, for you know, not listening well or being self-focused or taking advantage of others, they feel it. We, as Christians, are not called to pat them on the back and say, you know what, you're a pretty good person. It wasn't that bad. No, we don't do that. Why? Because what they're feeling is true. Like, it isn't okay to be self-focused. It isn't okay to take advantage of others. It's not. It's, our role is not to say that's okay. Grace actually says, you're right, it's not. It's not okay. But I... I'm going to be with you in this. I'm going to show you that, like, I'm going to offer you forgiveness. Um, In fact, I'm going to love you deeply right in the middle of your sin. That's grace. It's not saying it doesn't matter. So first of all, some people are already feeling the discipline. Some of you know exactly what I mean. You felt the discipline. You feel it all the time. Number two... Well, not everybody does feel the discipline, do they? Um, If you really want to know the condition of a heart, of a soul, see how a person responds to grace and mercy. You slap rules on them, they might rebel or they might behave, but apply grace and you will learn more. Every time. If you forgive someone 
see, if you, a, a person is harsh and you respond in kindness, you learn a lot more about them by responding that way. They might melt. They might, they might be transformed. Or they could respond in other ways. They might say, well, you can offer that to me, but I will not offer it back. I'm, I'll take your forgiveness, but I'm not going to be moving toward you. Or even darker, a person might say, aha, I have found someone I can take advantage of. I will use this to get my way. Now, when that happens, you have learned something about the person's heart that a rule could never teach you. People can follow rules for all kinds of reasons. When you offer grace and someone says, I'll take it, but I won't give it, or I'll take it, and I'll take it, and I'll take it, and I'll take it, then you have a litmus test of where their heart's at. The scriptures are full with good reasons and discernment tools that exhibit this. It's in there over and over again. You can see this worked out over and over again. Think about the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. The disciples are asking Jesus how many times they should forgive somebody, and he suggests they should keep on forgiving over and over and over, 70 times 7, which means, like, just don't stop, basically. Um, and he tells a story of a, of a servant who goes to his master with a great debt. It's a monetary debt in the parable. And, uh, and he begs and pleads, and the master has mercy. He, uh, he has pity for him, and he forgives him of his debt. And then that same servant has someone under him who owes him something and has no mercy for him, doesn't offer any, anything. And Jesus says that, that this servant will be judged why? Is he judged for having the debt? No, he's judged for not offering grace that was offered to him. The judgment comes down when the condition of his heart is shown that he is one that takes grace but won't give it. See? There's another example or two. There's Hebrews 6, um, which talks about somebody who receives the incredible gift of Jesus' work on the cross, tastes the heavenly gift, and then uses that as a license to go right back and keep doing all the sin they want to do. That's somebody who, you know, the kind of person who, who, who would just go like, you know what, I'm going to sin and ask for forgiveness later. I'm going to use sin as a license, or I'm going to use grace as a license. And Hebrews 6 says, no, 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 you cannot do that. Because what you do when you do that is you actually mock Christ and you expose him to absolute disgrace in public. It's not love for Jesus. It's a trampling of the cross. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul talks about people who, there's a statement he makes that seems to be a quote, why not keep on sinning so we can have more grace? <laughs> and the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not the spirit of the transformed heart. The transformed heart doesn't say, oh my gosh, God forgives me, I'll do whatever I want. That exhibits something else. Someone who wants to use God for their own devices. 
And in a powerful example of how this works out in the real world, Jesus taught us how to respond when someone commits evil against you. Matthew 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, he talks about this. He says, you've heard, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, um, you know, eye for an eye, if somebody gouges your eye out, go gouge theirs out. You know, somebody stabs your tire, go stab theirs, right? But he says, you've heard that, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. Someone takes your, your cloak, give them your tunic as well. Someone asks you to walk one mile, walk, walk another. And now that sounds like, that's scary, right? Like when you hear that, like how many of you, how many of us have actually done it? Um, it sounds like when you get treated like garbage, just take it again, take another hit, keep, just keep dealing with it. Um, but in fact, it's not quite so simple. There's some really important stuff in the words here. Jesus talks about which cheek and which hand specifically. Why does he do that? Why does it matter? Why is, what's the difference between a cloak and a tunic? What's the difference between a first mile and a second mile, right? It's really, it's really important to understand. The first cheek that gets struck in Jesus' words on the sermon is the strike of the master to the slave. It's the backhand. Um, and what Jesus suggests is when someone backhands, you turn the other cheek to him and make him treat you like a man. That's actually kind of, that would be a good rephrase of it. Make him treat you like a man. Um, the cloak is the outer garment. The tunic's your underwear. Um, that's interesting. So it'd be like, you know, if they, in our day, it'd be like, if they ask for your jeans, give them your boxers and a nice view of everything they don't want to see. <laughs> Except in Jesus's day, that wasn't just like weird. That was like, you were going to subject them to being unclean. Like they were, this, this was like, they were going to be shamed. They were going to be like, no, 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 stop, please don't. Like, it broke all the rule, like they, you were gonna put them in a position of like seriously being like, stop it, please stop it, please stop it. Um, the second mile is interesting uh, because in Rome, the Roman soldier could command a citizen under them to carry their pack for a mile, one mile. And if they went, if the person carried it beyond that or if they made them carry it beyond that, they would get in trouble with their superiors. So all of a sudden, the Roman soldier makes you carry their pack for a mile, and you keep walking. And they say, please stop. Give me my pack. You're going to have to take it. And they're yanking that pack off you. They're like, no, 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 no. Don't do it. What's happening? In front of everybody, they are being exposed. That they, you made them carry, they made you carry their pack. This, these are all situations that make a person uncomfortable and have to deal with what they've done to you. These are all situations that expose something in the person, that exposes the darkness and the evil in their heart. Jesus isn't just going, yeah, you know, if you have a bad day, have a worse day. He's saying, how about this? You can, you can fight against darkness with a, with a tool that isn't just, you know, hit them back. Tit for tat, eye for eye. He said, I have something more powerful. You can show them their own heart. You can expose their own heart to them. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. understood how this worked. Think about it. I mean, 
None of most of us weren't around when he was. But there was something pretty profound about his marches. Um, when they're peacefully singing, you know, we shall overcome, and they're being beaten on the side, fire hoses are being shot at them, dogs are being sent in to attack them. When you see those video clips, as many of you have, um, who looks evil? Who looks evil? Who's exposed, right? Many of the people, and, and King was clear on this, he would state this very clearly, our oppressors need to see the evil in themselves before they can change. If they're going to change, they need to, they need to see it. They need to watch themselves on TV and weep at who they've become. And then they might change. He would, he would frame it that way. It's for them too. If they're going to have a chance to change, they need to see it as evil. He would say, if we, if we go fight back, if we pull guns on them, we won't prove a thing. And there's a marked difference between that type of exposure and violent retaliation in which the objective might be accomplished, but the exposure is reversed. When you look back at moments in history where the two sides fought, right? What about Rwanda? You know? It's hard to see, you know, when the two sides are clashing and killing one another. It's hard to look at that and go, which one's evil? It's harder. But the exposure is powerful. There are generations who were changed by watching their parents do evil and deciding, I'm never doing that. Now, that's big picture. Um, but we prepare for that in the day-to-day -day realities of our lives. Think about this. Ask this question yourself. Do you extend grace and patience to those, those who annoy you? Um, do you extend as much grace and patience to those who annoy you as you are extended by those who, who you annoy? If you don't, you need to consider this. This is a serious issue. Grace giving is a powerful test of the heart, especially if you receive grace, if you're only included in Christ by grace. Am I forgiven? How can I withhold forgiveness? Am I given mercy when I fail? How can I not give mercy? And if I can't, I'm the unmerciful servant. That's what Jesus was trying to show us. That's why he told that story. If I can't forgive you when I am only in Christ because of forgiveness, then I do not understand Christ. This is critical. I think 80% of the time that in my own heart, and in our, in our circles here, when I hear a critical word, almost every single time, I remember reading an old theologian, and he said, when you hear a person's criticism of others, there is their sin. And I have seen it true over and over again in my life and in ours. You criticize somebody, and, I'm, and you're thinking, anybody with an outsider's perspective can go, but you're like that. It happens all the time. Why is that? We hate the sin of others that resembles us. And if we can't forgive, we probably don't understand our own forgiveness. 
See, grace has power to change hearts, and it's deeply powerful, but it also has incredible power to expose and discern evil. When grace is offered, and it won't be received, and it won't be reciprocated, there's something dark in there. So that principle is being taught to these servants. Show the people um, the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. It's not be a doormat. It's a call for gospel mission to expose evil in their own hearts, to fight with the sword of the Spirit, to fight for their souls. It's a mission of grace. This scriptures is not for masters to justify them. It's for servants to teach them how to turn masters into servants of Jesus, even when they are dealing with injustice, which is named unjust. In Chicago, there's a, uh, there's a white pastor in the suburbs that I've met recently. There's a photo of him and some other folks, if you want to put it up. His name's Tim. Uh, he became convinced. I've told a little bit of his story, but this is a different angle on it. He became convicted that he needed to do something about the history um, of churches in Chicago. There was something he needed to do. And he was connected with uh, Clarence Hilliard, who was the pastor of Austin Corinthian Baptist Church in West Chicago. And Clarence Hilliard was an outspoken person who said things need to change. And Tim went to him and he said, I want to partner with you guys. We want to, our church in the suburbs wants to, uh, wants to have a relationship with a black church. And Clarence looked at him and said, no, thank you. We've heard this before. And uh, it's a waste of our time. And Tim said, well, I, but we really want to do that. He said, look, yeah, and we, and we go back and forth and nothing, nothing changed. Really, really, it's a waste of our time. And Tim said, he said, I didn't have this planned. The words just came out of my mouth. And he said, Clarence, I want to submit to whatever you tell me to do. And this pastor, Clarence Hilliard, said, really? And he said, yes. And he said, well, okay. And uh, I think it's been 25, 30 years Clarence Hilliard's died, his son's taken over the church, and Tim still considers himself and his church to be in submission to whatever that church thinks they should do. Now, he, uh, he met a woman uh, in, the, in the community through that church who started a business. Her name was Rashida, and uh, she was telling a story. She's in the middle there. And uh, she was telling a story on January 6th um, when when we were all watching TV and, and watching what was going on, they ended up with a brick that had the N-words and no N-word uh, that had been thrown through their window at the cafe. And she called Tim and said, Tim, what do we do? And Tim rallied the, the Anglo community. They brought some folks down. Um, they kind of, they called up some people at the police force, de-escalated. There was a riot was, was sort of forming in the neighborhood. Um, and, and Tim helped helped cool things off. He helped bring some peace. He came and stood in the middle, and he, and he worked things out. And Rashida said to him, she said, he's my pastor. And Tim looked over at her. I said, this is all just live in the moment. He said, what? And she said, you're my pastor. I knew I'd call you. You'd take care of me. Tim set out to submit, right? He was surprised to hear this. And all of a sudden, a black woman in the city of Chicago says, you are my pastor. 
What in the world? He sets out to submit. He's exalted. The thing that can't seem to happen, the thing that can't be figured out in the city of Chicago, right, happened. Because he didn't want that. (laughs) That wasn't what he was after. The whole dynamic got flipped. He was shocked. And of course, a pastor is just someone who, uh, the word's like shepherd, like you care for sheep. But she said it in an honoring way. Serving had more power. Submission was effective. This is evidence that the most effective way to gain influence and make a change is to lay down your life and to serve. Which leads, of course, to the person we are called to walk with. The principle is show people the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. The pattern of Jesus is service. He served. He came not to be served, but to serve and giving his life as a ransom for many. The power is inherent in mercy and grace, and it's profound, but most importantly is the person of Jesus Christ. The calling here, it says in our scripture, is to follow in his steps, which is to say close behind him or in intimate acquaintance and proximity with him. When we take the posture of the servant, it's because that is what he did for us. That's how we met him. If you know Jesus, it's because he served you when you didn't deserve it. Remember in the upper room with his disciples, um, what he did, when he did what a household slave would do, he washed their feet. Peter, our uh, author of this text, protested. As Peter was like, I'm, I have to fix things myself. You, you, can't, you can't lower yourself like that. I'm gonna, I'll do it. I'm going to wash your feet. I'll wash everything. And Jesus said, no, you need, this is my paraphrase, you need to let me do this. Because Peter couldn't receive grace. And Jesus washed their feet. And then Peter denies Jesus uh, three times when he's in his mistrial and as he's being taken to the cross. And Jesus came to him post-resurrection and he commissioned him three times. He asked him three different ways if he loved him. He used different words for love. That's another sermon. But every time afterward, he commissioned him. He said, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Here's Peter who's just been, become aware that he's the worst. He's denied Jesus three times, and for every denial, Jesus sends him back out into the world. Go, go, go. What's he taking with him? Grace, mercy. Before all that happened, Peter had been given the highest words of honor. He said, um, He changed the name from Simon to Peter and said, you are a rock upon you. I will build my church. And he gave it to the one who ended up deserving it the the most or the least, the one who denied him. And now Peter is here teaching these people and teaching us to show the power of mercy through the pattern of Jesus. Why is he teaching that? Because that's what he got from Jesus. That's what transformed his life. If you're a Christian, that's what's transformed yours. If that hasn't happened to you, if you haven't seen and tasted this grace, then you might not be a Christian yet, no matter what you've said. Being a Christian isn't saying so. It isn't being here. It isn't praying. It isn't reading the Bible. Being a Christian is being saved by grace. It's being exposed as sinful. It's being served by Jesus and transformed. 
and it's lived out by offering that same mercy to others. If you'd say, I have received it, but I just can't seem to offer it, he's also patient. Jesus serves you day after day after day. And then these words that ended our scripture become really critical for us. We need to learn to serve and to suffer for the cause of exposing evil in in order to exhibit grace and truth. Here's what Peter said, for to this you have been called. This is your calling, this is our calling. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was sin found in, or was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And we so easily forget this. But Jesus brings us back. He's patient. And that's why Christians in worship, ever since Jesus died, have remembered what he's done on a weekly basis. It's so easy to forget. This table is essentially set by Jesus. This is Jesus pointing us to what he did for us. This is how, this is how you were changed. This is how you were brought near Jesus at that same table after he washed the disciples' feet. He says, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood poured out so that you could be forgiven. And every time we eat and drink of it, we declare his death, which is what? It's his, it's his service, it's his grace for us until the day that he returns. For us, this is our salvation. For us, this is our pattern of ministry. What do we do? What do we take to the world? We serve, we lay our lives down. Is it, did Jesus just get trampled upon? Mm, I don't know. The kingdom of Rome that crucified him, they're not, they're not around anymore. The kingdom of God still is. Maybe it's more powerful than we think. Maybe it could really transform the lives of people. This evening, we're going to do a few things. Um, I'm going to pray uh, briefly, and we're going to take a two-minute silence. That's time for you to just bring anything and everything to God. I mean, I would especially say if there's something today in there that maybe something you can't forgive people of, maybe to ask God, is that a signpost to my, to my sin? Can you help me see what you've done for me and offer mercy to others? Um, if this is all new to you, it's just a good time to just say, just, just try talking to God. I believe, help my unbelief, or something like that. Afterward, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to have time of singing. We have giving in the back, and that's for you all to contribute to the mission. And we always finish with dinner, which is because we're all in this together. And we eat together, and we tell our stories. So as I pray, let's prepare our hearts just to, um, to come before a gracious God. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful to be with these people who you've gathered because of nothing but sheer grace. Uh, We're not better people. 
Um, we're not good people at all. Um, we fall so short of your glory, but you're so kind. It's your kindness that's leading us to repentance. I pray tonight that you would encourage our hearts and your grace and that you would fuel us to be givers of mercy. Transform us by your good news. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for teaching us to serve. As we come before you, guide us as we pray. Thank you for being so tender and merciful. When we come to you with our darkest sins, you hear us and you're gracious. So help us to trust you and guide us now as we pray.